Homage to the great means, expansive Buddhas, flower adornment sutra, and the ocean wide, flower adornment assembly of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samhasam buddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samhasam buddhasa. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadanto Suchedo Ye Hulafudi Sanya San Putoshe Namo Sadanto Suchedo Ye Hulafudi Sanya San Putoshe Wu Shan 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 Wenya Bai Chen Wanche Nam Zao Yu Wachin Chen Wan De Shou Chu the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. This is the 12th of November, Saturday night in Berkeley, California. We're looking into the third ground of the Ten Grounds chapter. And please turn to the front cover of your text. We're going to recite the name of the Sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Namo Oh, 
Please turn in your text to page 44 and 45. Sutra in our booklets, so we got one page to the good, but not enough to staple it, so you'll also find this extra page, and that that's our next, that is page 47 and 48, with the Chinese being 46, so I'll tell you when to pick up this one. But tonight we're going to start on three lines from the bottom. In other words, we stopped last week with the Chinese text, three lines from the bottom. And the English for that is, he sees all beings imprisoned in the jail of the existences. Okay, ready? Okay, we're going to switch over to page 45 now. 45. He sees all beings imprisoned in the jail of the existences. And he feels sympathy. He sees that all beings are forever covered by the dense forest of afflictions. And he feels sympathy. He sees that all beings lack the perspective of contemplation. And he feels sympathy. This is the Flower Garland Sutra called the Avatamsaka, Yinjing. And the topic of the Avatamsaka is the Bodhisattva. And it's a uh, primer, it's a handbook of instructions about what Bodhisattvas do and say and think. And the sutra takes us directly into the mind of the Bodhisattva. It's as if it kind of opens a window on their, on their thinking processes. And and uh, there are those who say that the, the Avatamsaka is 
they say it's the, the Buddha's pinnacle of philosophy. And in fact, there are philosophical elements, but it's much, much more uh, an ethical text. It talks about behavior. It talks about the uh, emotional reactions of an awakened being at the sight of suffering. And the end of suffering, the joy that comes when suffering stops, it talks about that as well. So it's a, a very human document. And our task, while we come back week after week after week, is to uh, bring it to life. And just to, it doesn't take much to bring the sutra to life. You just shine light on it. You open the text and put the words in our, in our eyes and in our ears and in our hearts. And the, uh, the energy of this uh, multiple thousand year old document just uh, as one friend said turns the air to crystal makes makes the the arising of thoughts something an event something to watch something to to uh, pay attention to so all right where are we we're in what's called the third ground and there are 10 of these uh, states of bodhisattva's gradual, progressive uh, awakening to wisdom and compassion. The ten grounds. This this particular chapter is the. Uh, we're more than halfway through the text. It's a long text. The whole thing, the whole Avatamsaka, is a very long Buddhist sutra, and this is out of uh, forty. This is twenty-six. It's one of the longer chapters among long chapters. And the Ten Grounds is, um, it has other packages. This information comes in other packages. That's the way to talk about it. There are shorter versions of the Ten Grounds. There are um, descriptions of the Ten Grounds that arose inside of other schools. For example, the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra by um, some of the, the famous monks honored in what's called the Nalanda school. Uh, among them, His Holiness, Dalai Lama, and the, uh, the Tibetan tradition of the Geluks very much honor that tradition. And it's the same bodhisattva information, but put into a different format and, and uh, given at a different time but recognizably the same, the same stories, the same values, the same heroes are honored in this text. So this is the, um, the third ground out of ten is a description. It's called the, the ground of blazing light, emitting light. And we've been through one stage of happiness and the ground of happiness. And we've been through the second, which is called the ground that leaves defilement behind. And that was not long ago, so we're just over the, we're just through the gate at the start of the third ground. So we're finding out what a bodhisattva on the third ground is like. What are they like? And these, um, each of the stages, each of the grounds has a pattern, has a structure that you kind of, uh, that underlies the different information in each one. 
And each of the grounds actually has their own identity. If you wanted to know um, what's the pattern, you need to know the paramitas. The bodhisattvas, dharma is called the perfections, the paramitas, bolomi. Because they, the, the ten grounds actually uh, move along with the paramitas to a certain extent. But for example, just to flash ahead, the sixth ground is entirely about the twelve links of conditioned arising. The twelve links of codependent origination. And it's just there. And that corresponds to the wisdom paramita, but it's, it's funny, it breaks the mold at that point. We'll get there uh, before too long. Although we, we go pretty slowly through our text, we're not in a hurry, certainly. But we'll, we'll get to the, the sixth ground. And it talks about the twelve links. It, basically what the twelve links do is, it, you could say, by analogy, it lifts the hood on the universe. And it shows how the engines that drive all conditioned things, all things that we see, hear, taste, touch, feel and know, how, they're, how they arise, how they progress, how they decay, how they vanish, and then come back. What the 12 links do. It's like very much like a, looking at a car engine. You see the pistons moving, you see the crankshaft turning, you see the spark plugs firing. That's what the 12 links do. And the... The, that sixth ground is all about that. So it's very interesting. Anybody who's interested in mechanical things, why this makes that happen, the, the sixth ground is where you want to be. So we'll get there before long. So tonight, uh, with that being kind of the context of, of what we're doing, the, um, our bodhisattva on the third ground has been looking at the things in the world around us. They're called conditioned dharmas. That's the technical term. Conditioned dharmas means things that are made of other things, which is, as we, we've learned, everything. Because everything, 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 from our bodies to the planet, are things made up of other things. They're components. They're, they are... Um, if you think about your computer, okay, computers have... Um, uh, Michael, we, we might want to turn the heater on a little bit. I think people are experiencing a little... Uh, we we kind of get used to it cold, but if you heat your house and then come into the monastery, you're going to say, gee, that place is cold. I've made my once, once annual pilgrimage to the monastery, and that's enough. I forgot how cold it was last year. So... I explained to one of our Chinese elders, Chinese elders today that our teacher came from Manchuria and she said, they're, they're used to, they're, they're frozen, they're, they're in the habit of freezing. That's why they never turn the heat on. So anyway, so we'll turn the heat, you'll get real heat, I guarantee you'll be warm. So our bodhisattva is looking at things. And what is a conditioned dharma? What are components? Think of your computer. Now, if you have a, an iPad, that won't count. But think of your old desktop. Desktops are going out. Did you know? Your desktop is an endangered species. We're all heading towards laptops. And then probably from laptops to tablets. But that's, that's in the future. Think of your desktop computer. What did you have? You had a monitor. You had the box, with the CPU, the 
chip in it, the thing that you put the, the DVDs in. You had the keyboard or the mouse usually, or some sort of tracking device. Then you might have had a printer, and you might have had a scanner, and you might have had speakers, or, and a modem. Those are all components. And take one away, and you, the experience is different. Right? Take away the monitor, you don't see anything. Take away the keyboard, and you can't control it. So the Buddha in our chapter here is describing everything, everything as that way. Everything is made up of other things, and they're all in transition. They're all passing through. They all come, stay together for a while, go bad, and then they're gone. And they reform. They recycle themselves. And think some things are more volatile than others. For example, these flowers, these beautiful flowers here in the base, are not going to be here long. They come and go pretty quickly. The table takes a little longer, but it too has ways of transforming. Add heat, and it transforms. So the, uh, our Bodhisattva is saying, yes, conditioned dharmas, yowefa, says conditioned dharmas are that way. And why do we need to know that? Who cares, right? Well, the problem is that if we're talking about your mother, we care. Because why? If her body goes bad, we suffer. Um, as we age, we suffer. Why? Because we get attached to things being the same. We want things to be dependable, stable, steady. And they're really not. Really, really not. And we go to great lengths to try to slow things down as they change. And uh, keep them the same. But ultimately it's futile. Because things do change. Things all come and go. So that's the nature of conditioned dharmas. And as a result, the Bodhisattva is saying such things as what? Uh, he notices how it contemplates. Our Bodhisattva contemplates how... Things are tied up with love and hate. How they increase anxiety and sorrow. How they create misery that never stops. The fires of greed, rage, and delusion burn without cease. So that's, that's been our contemplation for the last couple of weeks. And you could say the Bodhisattva is not, what, misanthropic? The Bodhisattva is not depressed, right? The Bodhisattva is not down and bummed. No, he's real. She's looking at things the way they really are. And you might say, compassionately letting us know. But if you want sugarcoating, the sutra is not the place to find it. The sutra and the bodhisattvas in it are very interested in giving us the true story. Hard to take, but ultimately it's like a doctor. The doctor, if he says... Well, you'll be fine. A little bit of cancer, don't worry about it. You know, you go, tell me about that. Oh, it's no problem, it's no problem. Uh, Drink this and we'll see, you know, chemo. We'll see how it goes. You don't don't want to hear sugarcoating from a doctor when you have a life-threatening illness. So the bodhisattva is that way. He says, we're all going to come into being, stick around for a while, decay and go away. That's the nature of conditioned dharmas. So to hear that is, a, uh, is bracing, can be scary, but you can count on it being true.
count on it being accurate. So that's a good thing. Now, having told that story about the nature of conditioned things, then he goes on to say, the Buddha Dharma is dependable, safe, a refuge. It's the answer, it's the antidote, it's the cure. And he understands how the Dharma will um, give us perspective on a world full of conditioned things. And he says, arrives at a place beyond fear and never again retreats from that. Well, how does that sound? Imagine a place beyond any existential fear. So that's been the tension of the last couple lectures. And now, having lifted the hood, so to speak, and seen the nature of things, and having then recognized that the Dharma gives us the insight that doesn't waver, that doesn't change, the Bodhisattva compares the two and says, feel sympathy. Feel sympathy for those living beings who don't know, who don't know the truth, or who are invested in not knowing the truth, or who see the truth and try their best to avoid looking right at it. And I certainly can identify with all of those. So recently the Bodhisattva has been feeling sympathy. That's, that's where we are. And we're down at the, th- the third from the bottom. Okay, you all with us? You all find where we are? This is, that's been our extended introduction to what's going on here. So he says, the Bodhisattva sees all beings imprisoned in the jail of the existences, and he feels sympathy. What are the existences? The existences are called, in Chinese, they're called the yo. The, they are, there are 25 of them, and they correspond to the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. And there, that includes the heavens, which is interesting because the Bodhisattva is feeling sympathy for beings in the heavens, which would seem, from many perspectives, kind of counterintuitive. Isn't, aren't the heavens places that we should envy, that we should enjoy being in? And certainly, um, from many points of view, yes, that would be lovely. There are... For example, in the Jataka tales, um, stories of the Buddha's past lives that we know as stories of animals. When the Buddha was king of the deer, and when the Buddha was uh, a uh, uh, the, the quail that saved all the other quail, etc. Most of those Jataka tales end with the they say Bodhisatta from Pali going off to rebirth in the Brahma heavens. Right? That's they often do. The Bodhisattva ends the, the stories of the Buddha's past lives when he was an animal, take him to the heavens. And the Brahma heavens are places where the Bodhisattvas are dwelling in the dhyanas. So they're in a state of meditation that is quite blissful and quite wonderful. So um, even in Buddhist literature, we have beings going to the heavens. But understand that those uh, in the heavens, they're in that state of dhyana, in that state of unchanging stillness and purity. So, um, 
they're in a way um, immune to the these conditioned dharmas in that state of meditation. So what we're hearing about here, prisoned, imprisoned in the jail of the existences. So somebody, for example, my mom. My mom, being a good Methodist churchwoman, really does, really, really does want to go to heaven at the end of her life and sit at the right hand of God, you know, with the angels. And far be it from me to say, Mom, what do you want to go to jail for? Jeez, Mom, you know, why don't you go free? You can't say that. You know, Mom, you know you're just going to be behind bars in heaven, right? No way, it doesn't compute. You know, I can't say that. Um, first of all, it would be a hard sell. You know, she wouldn't necessarily agree. Second of all, her whole life she's been told that that's the highest good. And if you're in a theistic faith, it is. Imagine being close to the Creator. So understand that this, this view, that the existences are a jail, are a prison, is not a popular view. Right? Even in countries where Buddhism has been for hundreds and hundreds of years, many, many, many folks will hear this and raise an eyebrow. How could it be that an existence, the you, zhu you, lao yu, zhi suo jin bi, that an existence is lao yu, is a prison. Here's, here's the notion. The Buddha, the Bodhisattva in our sutra has been pointing at what? Yo Things made up of other things. They're called conditioned dharmas. And that includes, you know, obviously even the, the, the bodies that we're, we're using to hear the dharma. They go bad. They're not reliable. They age before our eyes. So if you're reborn in the heavens, which is a more comfortable existence than a physical. That is to say, we live longer. Lifespans are longer. But all the same, until they have reached the state of irreversibility, until they've reached a state of transformation of consciousness, they will come apart. They will return to old age, sickness, death, and rebirth. Gods fall out of the heavens. Who says so? Well, what about Gotardamarum? Right? You look at even the operas of in Western Europe. There are operas about the gods that reach the end of their lives. So it's completely a part of Western civilization. But we don't hear about that so much. You look at Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. Gods have a lifespan. How interesting that there is a level of cultural anthropology that completely agrees east to west. Shared among Hindus, shared among Greeks, shared among Zoroastrians, shared among Buddhists. So there is a level of, you could say, heritage learning that says, yeah, gods die. Funny idea, huh? Gods die. It's just, you don't, you don't think of it that way. The gods have a lifespan. And yet here's the idea. The existences are prisons, imprisoned. So what's a prison? Prison says, can't go free. Not free. 
The door closes, the key turns, you don't go out. Okay, that's the idea of a prison. Who would think that from the Buddhist perspective, heaven is no freer than a human body? In principle, it's no different than being in an animal's body or a ghost or a hobby. It's much more blissful, it's more blessed, but in nature it's the same thing. How interesting. So the, when you touch these sutras, you have to kind of re... you have to loosen up some of the, the understandings that you've had and get all kinds of new information. For example, in our very same... Avatamsaka Sutra, the Huayan Jing here, it talks about, there's a chapter called the Xian Shouping, the worthy leader chapter, leader in goodness chapter. It talks about what happens when the Ashuras go to war against the gods. It's the closest thing that the Avatamsaka Sutra has to any kind of violence you'll notice that our sutra is completely free of bloodshed. Anybody ever do that kind of reading of Buddhist sacred literature? No bloodshed. There is a description of war between the devas and the asuras. How interesting. Okay, what does it say? It says that there, there's this category of beings called asuras, sometimes called asuras, depending on how you spell that S, who are always struggling with the gods for control over the heavens. Not all the heavens. These are the heavens in the desire realm. Particularly the first heaven, which is called the Tian, the heaven of the four gods, and also the Sanshisantian, uh, the heaven of the 33 gods also called the Triastrimsha heaven. What does it say? It says there are these beings that are jealous of the gods' ease and comfort and bliss, and they're always going up and struggling with them, trying to take over. That's what it says, and it describes, this chapter describes what the gods in that heaven do in order to defend themselves. Particularly, Lord Chakra, Chakra Devanam Indra, Di Shutian, who, all of you Christians, close your ears, you don't want to hear this. Chakra is said to be the equivalent of Lord God on high, the uh, Lord God. And he's, um, he has many, 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 many wives and many, 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 many sons and children. And he's a, he's a good guy. He speaks the Dharma and he teaches everybody to meditate and cultivate and become Buddhas. So that's his job. Master Pa would say, he'd say, his actual status is about the same as a notary public, or maybe a postmaster, he would say. In the Buddhist court, he's a postmaster. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's profoundly not a good interfaith statement. We don't want to uh, get, uh, get people upset with us for, for bringing God down. No. So, okay, we don't, those are the facts you don't bring out first. Point is, what? In our sutra, Lord God on high, Lord Chakra, is heroic. What does he do? He has the ability to fight with Shantong. He uses psychic powers to war. And what does he do? He transforms himself into a fierce, fire-breathing, 
Vajra knight, Jingang Li Shi, who's got many, many heads, countless arms, and every arm is holding a flaming pestle. And because of the power of his psychic abilities, each Ashura sees Chakra coming down directly at him individually, bearing these flaming pestles and with fangs and about to smash their heads and they get terrified and run away. That's what the sutra says. So there's no bloodshed. They win through deception, through superior military tactics, scaring the Asuras to death. So the Asuras go, oh my God, and run away. And that's the end of the battle. And it happens over and over again. So how interesting, what a concept, right? That first of all, there's warfare in the heavens. You can go to heaven and become a soldier if you're a god who is fighting. And that the Asuras are always struggling with the devas for control of the heavens. Now, who else in mythology says anything similar? Greeks. What do they talk about? They talk about titans. What do the titans do? Struggle with the gods from Mount Olympus. Go, huh, funny. Now, we don't want to carelessly say this equals this, but that sounds really similar, doesn't it? Here we have the Buddha Sutra describing these beings that love to fight, the Asuras, trying to knock the gods off of Mount Sumeru and take over the Buddhist heaven. And here we have Greek mythology saying the same thing. Interesting. You know, just kind of, you wonder, did we read those Greek myths too quickly, set them aside as being old myths, i.e. phony, right? If we equate myth with false, that's just a myth. That's not the proper use of the word myth. Myth could be a profound level of human experience shared among peoples for a very long time, carrying information that we need to find out who we really are. That's a much more useful description of myth, a level of human experience and literature, but it's oral literature, that brings information about who we really are. So prehistoric, yeah, if you see history as a line of human behavior, straight line, linear, these myths seem to come around and around and around, shared among cultures, among races, among languages, for ages and ages. How interesting, right? So, here's, this is all a digression to talk about beings imprisoned in the jails of existence. What are the jails of existence? Well, go to the heavens and find out. You're in jail in the heavens. Why? This thing. As you're a god, you still have one. You got one. You have a body. Even in the heaven of the formless heaven, although there's no physical body, they say gods there have consciousness and it comes into being, stays there a long time, decays and goes away. Comes back again based on what you did while you were in that body. So what an interesting, long view of history. If you take this seriously, you think, man, in other words, when I die, you know, whenever that may be, 
if I just get another body and kind of, it's kind of like stepping back on stage in another costume. I step off stage, change costume, and come right back on stage with a script in my hand and I'm on another part. It's like, when does this story end? When do I finally get to, to end? The, when does the play end? You know, when is that? It's like, huh. So I really enjoy this perspective because it kind of, it gives you a whole other sense of the arc of time and the importance of my next thought in bringing me back on stage in yet another role. Who can choose the role that you play in the next, the next time the curtain rises? Well, we do, ultimately. We're the actor, the playwright, the director, and in some senses the audience of each, each word, each action, each thought. So, and the Buddha's saying, yup, this is a prison. We're not free right this minute. We're not free in the heavens. We're really not free in an animal's body. Right? So those are all part of the 25 levels of existence. The six-spoked path, the form realm, which is the realm in the heavens, and then the formless realm, 25 in all, imprisoned in the jail of the existences, and he feels sympathy. So what do you do when you're in jail? You want to get out. You want to go free. Our Bodhisattva has done that. The Bodhisattva, indeed, has the key to the jail door, but comes right back into prison. Willingly. The only difference is he's got the keys in his pocket. She's got the keys in her purse. And she could leave any time, but she would prefer to hang out in the jail until everybody goes free. How interesting. The Bodhisattva sees beings imprisoned in the jail of the existences and feels sympathy. So this is really poignant in a state where officially last year we had more people in prison than in schools. State of California pays to keep more people behind bars than they do in schools. And the, uh, the Occupy Cal movement, interesting. If you, if you look at, I'm, I'm convinced that the Occupy Wall Street manifestations that historians are going to be writing about are, uh, this is an important moment in, in uh Social, the history of social movements. The Occupy Cal movement, which just kind of got dramatically underway in the last week, we know because we're 10 blocks away and whenever somebody occupies something, a helicopter comes over. <laughs> we had a helicopter on Thursday from 12 noon until 10 p.m. Just like that, and we're just, oh, come on. You know, it's like... Who's, do you care that much? Are you photographing or what? Can't you just send a police car or something? Why does it have to be? 
What does it cost to keep a helicopter in the air for an hour? Probably $5,000 worth of you know, helicopter fuel, and they're there. So the interesting thing about that Occupy movement is that it was catalyzed by what? By tuition hikes. Tuition hikes. Legit. Right? And you see the sign. That they, because there was the cops, the police... Uh, used their batons to to poke students in their sensitive, soft midsections. Um, there, the press went, and there were cameras there, and some of the signs were uh, very poignant. The one that said, "You spent my tuition on another war." When I was uh, I spent six years there and then came back and did another ten. Um, and my, the tuition that I paid is something like half of what a student pays today. And that was, two, I graduated in 2003, which is scary. That, and of course, the, it's, it's poignant, poignant. It's doubly bitter because... The students are saying that the Board of Regents that levy the tuition are the 1% of the others who are uh, different than the 99% who are struggling, who are, who, for whom it isn't working, right? And yet the poignancy is that the Regents say, we take our orders from the state. Don't blame us. We're trying to make ends meet. So here we are. All these different variations of the same story, which is what? Not free. Not free. The prison of the existences. The door is shut. You can't go when you choose. So from the Buddhist point of view, it just makes... It gives a whole new light on the question, when am I really free? When do I get to choose? And I have a... um, I'm going to tell my uh, South African township story now while I have the microphone because we're going to hear some more South African stories in a few minutes. But um, the question of when am I really free is, is completely relative. And the sutras give us a chance. The sutras raise the question, you know, how do you define freedom? What are your priorities? The story, and I've, I've told it here before, and if you've heard it, then... Forgive me, but it's, uh, it works here. We've talked about the heavens as being yet another jail, and the Bodhisattva is very much including the plural, heavens, more than one, in his description of jails, as being places where you are not free. So the question is, when are we free? What is freedom? In 1999, 
I followed uh, 7,000 people down to Cape Town, South Africa for the Parliament of World's Religions. It was only the third one that had ever been in history. And everyone was excited because we were, it was, it was the, the chance for the rainbow nation of South Africa to really show itself. Uh, all of the promise and all of the heartbreak. And South Africa is truly a land of promise and heartbreak. If South Africa can make it work, we can make it work anywhere, coming from where they've come from. The, the Rainbow Nation is a place of incredible hope for humanity and profound despair and suffering. So there we were, witnessing um, all of this, the highs and the lows. And we were there with what are called religionists, right? This is all, uh, the, there were 300 different, specific, separate religions of the world represented in the parliament. And uh, some that people had never seen before, including Native American spirituality. Professor Houston Smith took uh, 30 Native American elders to Cape Town to bring our own indigenous North American religious traditions onto a world stage for the first time. That was when I met Joanne Shenandoah. And she was there to represent the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois people and their spirituality. And, and uh, Chief Jake Swamp there was there and Chief Oran Lyons. And it was uh, quite a moment. So at uh, one of the last days, there was a poster went up and uh, said, come experience a township. Come and bless people who are experiencing some of the most serious poverty the world has ever seen. We thought, oh, wow, we've come all the way to Cape Town. Here's a chance to take a tour to the townships. And the townships are where folks live if they've come recently from the bush, from the forest, from the jungle, and don't have the wherewithal to move to the cities the way people seeking wealth do. We want to urbanize, right? These are folks who left the village behind, but who are not yet in the city. So they kind of, you'd say, slum. The word is townships. Yeah. So we thought, wow, this is really, we get to see something that we've heard about but never, never imagined. And so uh, we all showed up on a bus. There was about 40 of us, and rabbis and priests and swamis and uh, scholars and monks and uh, lay people and a whole probably 12 different religions and 40 people and men and women, young and old. And we got on the bus and we're going out and the, the thought arrived to all of us at the same moment. Is this, are we going on slum tourism? Is that what we're doing? Are we going to go stare at poor people? Is that the point of this? What, what, was this a good idea? And we're all kind of, maybe we, we could just drive by and go back. You know, I don't, we, are we going to make an example of, you know, am I a rich person? What, what, am, I, what am I doing here? And some of the, the people who had this available to them said, well, just, just, just go pray. Go pray for them, for the poor people. You know, oh, 
okay. Well, it didn't promise to be much of an afternoon, and we were kind of hoping it would be over quickly, I think. So the, uh, the bus pulled off the highway and uh, went down a dirt road, and the, the road got rockier and rougher, and the potholes got deeper, and, and we saw people walking on the side of the road, and, and the bus just stopped. And I said, well, we're here, get off. Where are we? There was nothing visible. They said, we're here, just, this is it. And we turned off down a, a small dirt path. Couldn't see anything. <coughs> the tallest things were scrubby trees. And we came around a corner, and sure enough, here was, uh, as, as far as you could see, this uh, probably five or six acres of structures none of which was over chest high because it was all made of cardboard boxes and tin roofs and tin cans flattened and nailed together. And uh, it was, because uh, it didn't, didn't rain much there, the worst thing was wind. You didn't need much protection from, from weather. You need protection from sun. So it was just... Uh, the densest slum you've ever seen. If you've been to, to Rio's favelas, you kind of know what it was without the hills because this was flat. And there didn't seem to be any kind of roads. There was certainly no electricity, no running water. It was just shelters on the sun-baked plain. And we were thinking, boy, this was a big mistake. You know, okay, we've seen it. Can we go now? You know, it's kind of, mm, what am I doing here? And then we heard... Singing, we heard voices. We heard chorus, a chorus in harmony. And around the corner of what we saw was this is street came about a hundred people with giant smiles, young kids just surrounding us suddenly in a wave, and these grown ups just dancing, welcoming us. Each one took one of us and brought us around the corner, sat us down in the center and said, Welcome, you are our honored guests. We have come to sing for you, to make your day better, he said. And we're all looking around, you know, my goodness, these people were shining. They were so thrilled to have someone to host. And they gave us each a tin can full of hot water. And no tea, because there wasn't any. It was hot water. But it was their best. And they served us hot water, sang for us, told us stories, and then introduced us to their elders. Brought out grandma, brought out grandpa. No teeth, you know. But the biggest smile I've ever saw. And introduced us, asked us where we were from, made us feel so welcome, made us feel honored, that we, and taught us about hospitality. And we were all feeling so ashamed that we thought, poor people, who are the poor people? You know, certainly the ones who are having doubts and feeling guilty about, you know, something that should we be, you know. They, there was joy and connection and community and giving and sharing. And we... Just after about half an hour, I mean, 
everyone, the, all the boundaries were lost. We were swapping stories, laughing, you know, telling jokes in Hebrew, telling jokes in French, singing songs in English, listening to songs in Swahili and, and Urdu, and, and just having a wonderful time. And uh, when, it, when we left and got back on the bus, you know, there was just this utter joy at being human and being connected. And the notion of townships as a place of poverty utterly vanished. And the sense of, of uh, hospitality as a fundamental human uh, gift, fundamental human resource, as what you do to be human. And uh, the, uh, one of the, the young people who arranged the trip said to us, she said, I want you all to... Uh, she was a, a student at the University of Durban, or, or it might have been somewhere in Johannesburg. She said, I want you all to learn a word today. She said, what you just saw is called Ubuntu. Ubuntu. U-B-U-N-T-U. Ubuntu. And now Ubuntu as a computer language had not been invented. So if you're a geek and you say Ubuntu, no. No, 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 no. Not that. Ubuntu has since been co-opted for computer language and it's it's a if you type in ubuntu into google only the computer word comes up you have to dig way down to find the actual meaning of the word what is the meaning of the word ubuntu not computer ubuntu ubuntu means people become people through other people that's way more profound than it sounds we become we find our identity through our relationships so, sitting right where you are, right on the floor, here in Berkeley, California, in your skin, you are all children of parents. And in a flicker of a thought, you can bring your parents' faces to your mind. Many of you are parents of children. And if you happen to be a parent of a child in the room, congratulations. Um, I don't have any children. So I don't have that relationship. But we are also, in our skin, siblings of siblings. We are brothers of sisters. We are brothers of brothers. We are pretty much all of us students of teachers. And in a twinkling of a thought, you can bring your teacher's face to your mind. And some of us are teachers of students. We are friends of friends. We're all citizens of leaders. Some of us are, have been leaders of citizens. We are all employees of employers and vice versa. Teammates of teammates, etc. All simultaneously coexisting right inside the skin that covers our bodies. How interesting. People become people through other people. Ubuntu. Now, you flip that around... And they say, in these very same villages, if, you, if somebody really messes up, if you goof up, you make a big, big mistake, right? And you need to be punished, what do they do? Send you away. The worst punishment that can happen to somebody in this social structure is to be cut off. To be unpeopled to be unfriended, all you Facebook users. The worst thing you can do right, is to 
take somebody from the people that give us our identity. So, now what else happens? In this world, if you want to really hear about someone, you call the griot, G-R-I-O-T, that's the, the French word for it. The griot are the storytellers, but they do more than, it's not, you know, once upon a time, there were three billy goats gruff. It's not that kind of story. It's the story of the clan. And they can go back many, many multiples of generations and tell you who was your 45th ancestor. Because that's what the griots do. They keep the line alive. And they get out there, their kora, they get out their nylon string instrument called a kora, kind of like a harp, and they start going and they tell you about the original ancestor and how many cows he had and what a great hero he was in battle and how many children he fathered and, and how many wives he had and, and how, who was the greatest wife and became the queen and how many daughters she had. And, and they go on for hours and then everybody goes out to get a drink and food and they come back and he's still going, right? And, and they all go to sleep and they wake up in the morning and the story goes on, you know. This is what griots do because why people become people through other people. It's our relationships that make us who we are. So, what a wonderful idea. And the folks who came out to greet us in the township, they were rich people. Not poor people. If you ask them, you know, what, what do you want? Well, a lot of them would say, I'd like a job. But living in the township, you had to get on a bus to get to Cape Town. And that, you know... And then when you get to Cape Town, you get off the bus, what do you find? Violence and competition and meanness and broken people. People who had to leave their families behind. So if you said, well, what, what would you like? They said, I have everything. My grandma's right here beside me. These are my kids. I have everything. What, is, what more is there? So he sees beings imprisoned in the jail of the existences and he feels sympathy. And yet... In these bodies, even though having one means that we're going to die and move when that goes, at the same time, the Buddha's message is benefit people. Take every opportunity to help people wake up. And before we wake up, be kind to each other. That's essentially the message. Okay, so we did one entire sentence, and it's time for me to stop because tonight we have a special event. We're going to expand on our inserts. I would like to ask all of you, please, to take your insert that you have there and stick it in the back page. Okay, this is the, what we're doing is we're we're growing our book as we go. This, this, uh, to have an English bilingual translation, we have to put it all together. And this, this booklet is hard work by our lay people in, in building it. So we've come this far in the third round, and we're, we're still going. So if you don't mind inserting your, your text, we're going, I'm going to um, ask you, you also have a songbook in front of you. Would you please turn to the last song, The Dedication of Merit? 
So we're going to wrap up this um, section of the sutra and then turn to some real storytelling. The dedication of merit works by it's interactive. You have to make it work. You have to uh, take the merit that comes from listening to the Flower Garland Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. How rare is that? And joining together with wholesome friends in a peaceful place. All that goodness. And dedicate it to others. Share it with your mind. Just send it out. To all those fellow uh, prisoners in our skin jails, in our existences, in our consciousness jails. And uh, with the wish that you, you, whatever your wish might be, how you want to send it out, that we all go free together. The Bodhisattva at some point puts her hand outside and turns the key and the door opens and we move forward into nirvana, into the Bodhisattva path ourselves or into the the destiny of our choosing. So, whatever, <coughs> however you want to transfer your merit, please do. Because 